From the heart of The Ohio State University on the Oval, this is Voices of Excellence from the College of Arts and Sciences with your host, David Staley. Voices focuses on the innovative work being done by faculty and staff in the College of Arts and Sciences at The Ohio State University. From departments as wide-ranging as art, astronomy, chemistry and biochemistry, physics, emergent materials, mathematics and languages, among many others, the college always has something great happening. Join us to find out what's new now. Welcome once again to Voices, where because of the COVID-19 outbreak, we are conducting this interview over Zoom. And as a result, the sound quality may not be what you're accustomed to when you listen to us record these podcasts in the ASE Tech Studios. And so with that, I am very pleased and honored to welcome today's guest, who is Judson Jeffries, Professor of African American and African Studies at the Ohio State University College of the Arts and Sciences. His areas of expertise include media studies, public policy, homeland security studies, African American politics, and police community relations. He serves as editor of Spectrum, a journal on black men, and editor of the Journal of African American Studies. Welcome to Voices, Dr. Jeffries. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So you have described your research as that which increases people's level of political awareness and enhances people's life chances. And it strikes me that as we record this, we're in a particularly important moment where this research matters a great deal. As we record this, the George Floyd Black Lives Matter protests have extended across the globe. Can you help us make sense of what we're experiencing right now? Okay, so... You have a number of writers and scholars who are arguing that this is not new. They are misguided. Uh, This is very much new. Now, there are some components to what we are seeing unfold before our eyes that isn't new. So let me mention that and then I'll talk about that which is new. So the use of extra legal force by police officers against people of African descent Um, is as old as time immemorial, right? There's nothing new about that. And the protest over this kind of criminality isn't new. But here's what's new. Never before have we seen widespread protests taking place where the eye test tells you there are significant numbers of whites. We've never seen that before, despite the protestations of scholars and writers. That's new. Evidence of that is, for crying out loud, look at the city of Portland. The city of Portland, which, by the way, David, I am provided updates to the minutes in Portland because I have a couple of friends there, one of whom is a former member of the Portland branch of the Black Panther Party, who started the Portland branch of the Black Panther Party back in 1969, and it lasted until 1980. I get basically up-to-the-minute text from him daily in Portland, and he's one of the people participating in these protests. Now, Portland is the whitest major American city in the country. When you look at these protests, which have been taking place for darn near 60 consecutive days, right? You see the overwhelming majority of folk who are demonstrating, 
are white people. We've never seen that unfold before on the issue of police use of excessive force against people of African descent. Um, that's very new and it's very promising, right? Because they joined this fight in the way that whites joined the fight for civil rights during the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s. It's very promising. All right, now let me mention something else so that people will come away with a better appreciation for what they are seeing on TV and what's unfolding across America. So one thing that concerns me, David, is the way that a number of people in the media, not all, but a way that a number of people in the media and our colleagues across the country describe the upheaval. So oftentimes we will hear the word riot. And what I've been trying to do with my colleagues across the country, and my students know this very well because it's featured in my classes that talk about on the modern civil rights movement, the 1960s, the Black Power Movement, and that is this. See, a riot is spontaneous violence that is frivolous and that lacks a political purpose. What we are seeing are not riots. What we are seeing could be called, obviously they're disorders, but they could be called uprisings, they could be called rebellions, they can be called revolts, or they can be called insurrections, but they certainly aren't riots. So what I normally say to my students is I give them two examples. I say, listen, you will sometimes find at the conclusion of a sports team winning a either national championship or professional championship, uh, people in that city going to the streets and expressing themselves gleefully by turning over cars, setting fires, breaking windows out of department stores and things of that nature. Okay, well, that's one example. Well, let's look at the violence that unfolded on the streets of Los Angeles in 1992 when the four LAPD officers who brutally beat Rodney King were acquitted. What happened there? The city erupted. Now, why did the city erupt? The city erupted because you had decades upon decades upon decades long oppression, right? So severe segregation in Los Angeles, uh, out of control levels of unemployment, inaccessible uh, health care, overcrowding in public schools. Black and brown people have been subjected to this way of life for decade after decade after decade. And what happened was when Mr. George Holliday, who had just been given a brand new monstrosity called a video recorder, caught the four LAPD officers manhandling Rodney King that outraged people. Well, people said finally, oh, at last, we now have proof of what we've been trying to convince America of for years. Surely these police officers are going to get what they deserve. Well, as you know, David, that's not how it unfolded. They were acquitted. And what happened was the folk of Los Angeles, a few of them white, but the overwhelming majority of them were African-American and Latino, said enough is enough. And when the four police officers were acquitted, folk were flabbergasted, and they said, okay, this is the straw that broke the camel's back, and they erupted. 
My point is they erupted as a result of decades-long oppression that revolved around legitimate grievances. That's a rebellion, a revolt, an insurrection. The previous example I gave you about fans of sports teams, that's a riot. And I need folk to understand the difference. And the reason why they need to understand the difference, David, is because when you label some, something a riot, what you do is delegitimize folks' grievances to the point where you frame it such that readers and listeners come away with the idea that these folk are behaving that way simply because they want a new color TV, a couch, or a free toaster oven, as opposed to understanding that there are real problems in a city that need to be addressed, right? So when demonstrations that sometimes involve violence are framed as riots, it dehumanizes the people who have the legitimate grievances and makes it easier for the police to come in and employ Gestapo tactics, and it undermines the grievances of the revelers in such a way that readers of newspapers and listeners of the media go away with thinking that there are no real problems in the city, and therefore that lets the power elites off the hook with regard to having to funnel resources into these cities in order to address many of these problems. So that's something that I've hammered home with my students in my classes. I don't think, though, my lessons have reached many segments of the media and some of my colleagues across the country, but I need folk to understand that there is a difference. Words have meaning, and they impact how people think about phenomena. And then, as you know, when people think a certain way, that manifests itself in their behavior. So I want to make sure we understood that. You had said that the appearance of so many whites at these protests or uprisings, you described this as promising. What do you see as the promise? What kind of promise? Yes. Here's the deal, David. As long as people of African descent, as long as Latinos are the only ones on the front line arguing that something needs to be done about policing brown and black communities. As long as they're the only ones who are making this argument, it's easy for the majority of Americans to ignore. But when black and brown people elicit allies in the form of whites, then you get the attention of other whites, especially those who are in a position to do something about it. We would be naive if we did not believe that the participation of whites in the modern civil rights movement did not have its place and did not have an impact. As long as it's just black people and brown people complaining about the conditions under which they've been forced to live, it's easy to ignore. But once you gain allies, in this case, in the form of whites, although interestingly, Portland has a visible population of Asians and Native Americans. Once you gain these kind of allies, then it's difficult to ignore. And it's also promising in that while whites realize that this is not a problem that presently impacts them, 
there is no guarantee that some of them won't find themselves in the line of fire in the coming years. Because what, what we're seeing, David, is something akin to Nazi Germany. And what do I mean by that is, in my lifetime, I have never seen police manhandle members of the media, be they women or men, in the way that I've seen in the past several weeks. Placing them in handcuffs, running roughshod over them, shooting rubber bullets at them, knocking cameramen to the ground. I've never seen that before. Read about it, seen documentary footage about it in other places, but not in the United States of America. I think we're poised for change, and if it isn't going to happen now, it'll never happen. Hi, I'm Gretchen Ritter, Executive Dean and Vice Provost for The Ohio State University's College of Arts and Sciences. Did you know 16 of our programs are ranked in the top 25 in U.S. News and World Reports, with nine of those 16 in the top 10? That's why we say that the College of Arts and Sciences is the intellectual and academic core of The Ohio State University. Learn more about the college at artsinsciences.osu.edu. When you were talking about 1992 and Rodney King, the video was supposed to change everything, change his behavior. And of course, as you said, the video evidence, not only did it not produce the results that we were expecting, but in fact, that video footage was used to help acquit the police officers. What do you see today about, I mean, because all of these uprisings and all these cities around the world are being caught on video, all the things that you were just describing around police brutality. I mean, we can watch it on video. What's the status today of sort of video proof? Is it having any effect or will it have any effect? Oh, yes, David. Yes. The impact is quite discernible. Listen, so there was once upon a time when filing a a complaint against a police officer for excessive force was for all intents and purposes, futile. And I'm not talking about every single instance, but generally across the board, filing a complaint against a police officer was like whistling in the wind. With this um, video evidence, now we're seeing things, invisible numbers that we've never seen before, police officers being indicted, I mean, charged, indicted, convicted, and some of them are being sent to jail for long periods of time. We did not see that during the Rodney King Era. To some extent, that is unprecedented in the last several years. These cell phone camera warriors filming officers shooting uh, motors and pedestrians as they're fleeing. And then, of course, the officer not realizing uh, he's been filmed. So he gets back to the station and said, hey, listen, the guy was advancing on me. So I feared for my life. The video surfaces and then that person is admonished. So no, 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 no. It's helping. Interestingly, even though filming these brutal acts has its place. What I find very troubling is that you still have some officers who, even though they know they are being filmed, it doesn't deter their behavior. So Officer Chauvin, for instance, there were people on the sidewalk, tens of people on the sidewalk, filming him, yelling at him and the other officers who were standing by. They had their cell phone cameras out. And he did not attempt in the least bit to obscure 
right? They're shots. He kneeled there cavalierly with his knee placed on Mr. Floyd's neck. So when I saw that, David, this is what I was thinking. I was thinking a couple of things. I said, okay, wow. It's interesting that this officer is for all intents and purposes taking a knee. So I said, okay, is this his way of mocking those who said, okay, so you want to take a knee during the national anthem? I'll show you what taking a knee looks like. All of you who supported Colin Kaepernick, what do you think about this, right? There was nothing in his body language that suggested that he needed to camouflage what he was doing. Knelt for several minutes looking at the camera intermittently, right? Not in the least bit concerned. Here's the other thing I think that psychopath was thinking. Okay, you're filming me, but it's not going to help you one bit because I'm a police officer and I'm white and I'm protected by the state. Now, obviously, David, we all know that had he realized that he was going to be the poster child for all that is wrong with policing in the United States of America, he would have affected an entirely different disposition. But that wasn't his mindset at the time. His mindset at the time, I believe, was, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this with impunity because I'm protected by the state. Now, we're getting to the point, David, and I know a lot of people aren't going to like this, but we're getting to the point where it's good that we are practicing uh, many democratic ideals by pulling out our cell phone cameras and filming police misconduct. That's great. But at some point, some of us are going to have to put down the cell phones and intervene. So there was a period during the 60s and 70s where, you know, people engaged in cop fighting when they saw police engaging in behavior that was unlawful. At some point, some of us are going to have to put down the cell phone cameras, and intervene if we're going to get police officers' attention in such a way where they say to themselves, let me think twice about behaving in this kind of rogue manner, because if I proceed in this way, it may prove detrimental to my well-being on the street. So we may have to get to that point. You've said at um, various instances in this interview about the conversations that you have with your students and the way in which you bring these sorts of issues in the classroom. I wonder if you could give us a sense of, especially as the fall is approaching, we start teaching again, how do we teach in this moment? How do, how do we teach this? How do we communicate with our students? So the first day of every single class I teach, David, regardless of the topic, is I say to them, Moments after the class begins, I have four charges as a professor. One is helping you improve your writing skills because in this 21st century, it is important for you to be able to convey your thoughts convincingly, cogently, and clearly to, to help you become a better speaker. So I require class presentations in each of my courses. Three, to help you become a better thinker. And for those of you who don't know how to think, to teach you how to think. And I often tell my students that, hey, listen, most people, David, think how to think, but they don't know how to think. They just think they know how to think. So my job is to teach you how to do this and to impress upon you that in order to learn how to think, that requires time, 
that you devote each day that's solitary, get away from the screens, turn off the electronics, think about what unfolded during the day, what's ahead during the week, think about problems, grapple with them, dissect them and synthesize them in such a way where you're able to make sense of what's taking place in the world and your place in it. But lastly, David, and equally as important, my job is to get you to have a strong sense of social justice. And in order for me to instill that in you, David, what I say to my students is that they have to understand that they have a moral duty, a moral obligation to use the tools that they've acquired at the Ohio State University post-graduation to advance the life chances of someone other than themselves and their family. In order to advance the human race, we got to start with one person at a time. And graduates of the Ohio State University or any college are in a unique position to do that because they've acquired some skills that non-college goers do not have, right? And if they don't take this charge seriously, who will? So if not them, who? So in the classes I'm going to teach this fall, just as in the classes that I've been teaching, social justice and understanding that you have an obligation to advance the race by helping one person at a time is featured promptly. I'm going to be teaching, I think I'm going to be teaching major readings in African-American and African studies and black politics. Well, this semester, as opposed to previous semesters, what's taking place on America's streets across the country, that's going to be featured prominently. And that's going to take up maybe, maybe a third or more of the class. So I encourage my students, I say, hey, listen, if you're going to be citizens in the United States of America, I need you to become familiar with the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, and the United States Constitution. America's three most, as you know, David, three most sacrosanct documents, right? In the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson talks about the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. There's a segment I need my students to understand, that there's a segment of the American public that doesn't enjoy that right. And I believe that the only way for those segments to enjoy that type of right is for the majority of Americans, meaning whites, to get involved in this fight. And what I see across the United States of America, and especially Portland, I mean, who in the hell would have thought that Portland would be leading this fight? I mean, there's no way I could have imagined that. So I'm going to feature these issues promptly, and I'm going to be talking to students about what their role is in this development, as I said, that has been going on since time immemorial. I was talking to a gentleman the other day, Todd Jones, and he was asking me, Dr. Jeffries, let me ask you something. What do you think the Alumni Association could do? And I said, wow, that's a great question. So, hey, listen, as you know, David, we have one of the largest alumni associations in the world. So one of the things the Alumni Association can do to get the attention of people in power and to get law enforcement's attention is they could withhold their yearly donations. So I'm sure you, David, like me, you get calls throughout the academic year 
oftentimes at dinner time, from the FOP or from some law enforcement agency asking you to donate. So, hey, listen, the Ohio State Alumni Association um, can make it this business to inform alumni and say, hey, listen, we will withhold donations until we see some changes. Not only will we withhold donations, but we will encourage the alumni associations of the other Big Ten universities to withhold donations until we see some change. I mentioned the other day to Mr. Jones, hey, listen, this is a good opportunity for the Ohio State Alumni Association to pressure, but encourage the university to start, David, a center of the study of policing and community at the Ohio State University. Perhaps we could be up front on these issues and serve as a clearinghouse and publish some scholarship that has real-world consequences. So those are my thoughts there. That's my two cents there. Well, and you've already sort of anticipated my next question, which is what kind of changes do you anticipate? I'm not asking you to make a prediction, or maybe I am asking you to make a prediction. What sorts of changes do you anticipate coming out of this moment? Okay, this is what I would like to see. There is no street-level bureaucrat in the United States of America who exercises more discretion and thus has more power than a police officer. The police officer is the most powerful street-level bureaucrat in the United States of America. Now, why is that important? That's important because the police officer is also the street-level bureaucrat with which most Americans encounter on a day-to-day basis. The only person who you might see more frequently is the person who's delivering mail, right? I would like to see police departments recruit a higher caliber of man and woman. What do I mean by that? Police officers with a higher level of moral fiber. Because at the end of the day, we can talk about discrimination housing. We can talk about lack of health care. We can talk about overcrowding in public schools. We can talk about all of these issues that are impacting a large segment of the American people, which culminates in them living in poverty. But the issue I want to deal with right now is how minority communities get policed by America's law enforcement. So recruiting a better caliber of officer. How would we do that? Well, my idea is to make it mandatory that if you want to become a law enforcement officer, wear this badge and carry this gun, wear this uniform, you got to be a college graduate. No, the days of, okay, being a high school graduate and, oh, by the way, if you get your GED, that will qualify you as an applicant. No. I say, listen, make it mandatory to be a college graduate. And David, I don't want to be so exclusionary where I say that you need a four-year college degree. No. You can apply to be a police officer with an associate's degree. The thinking there is that those folk with more education are less likely to demonstrate the kind of intolerance that we've seen on the part of police officers for decades after decades after decades. And that a certain kind of education, right? So I'm partial to the liberal arts. The liberal arts, in my opinion, have a unique mission that's different from let's say, the natural sciences, right? So the liberal arts, we're concerned about humankind, the human condition, right? Whereas other disciplines, uh, not so much. So it's not just a college education, but it's a certain kind of college education that I'd want a candidate 
to be a police officer to have. That's number one. Number two, listen, those of us who study police, David, have found that women officers are less likely to engage in extra legal force that results in the death of motorists, right? So why on earth don't police officers recruit more women is beyond me. There are some countries in this world that have all female units, David, to handle certain problems that involve females, that involve women, right? So why we haven't jumped on that bandwagon, I don't know. So those are two things I might like to see. I'd also like to see a program whereby law enforcement makes the idea of entering law enforcement as a career more attractive to those who would ordinarily not give law enforcement a second look. So I would like to see something akin to what the military has been doing for years, officer candidate school. So instead of you going in as a grunt, or instead of you going in as a private, okay, hey, listen, there's a training program that can be put in place where when you graduate from it, you're not patrolling neighborhoods in a squad car on the other side of the windshield, but maybe when you graduate, you have a higher rank, you go in as an assistant detective or detective, right? And your salary is higher. If we were to come up with a program like that, I think you may attract some folk who otherwise would not consider law enforcement as a career. And then finally, and equally as important, when I was talking to Mr. Jones the other day, I said, listen, you cannot tell me that there aren't members of the Ohio State University Alumni Association who aren't members of law enforcement, right? And I would be surprised, David, if there aren't some graduates of the Ohio State University who aren't prosecutors and DAs. Well, the reason I'm mentioning that is because historically, not in all cases, but generally speaking, historically, prosecutors and DAs and law enforcement have had a cozy relationship which makes it difficult for police officers to be held accountable when they engage in police misconduct. So one of the things I tell my students who say, Dr. Jeffries, listen, I know you like to push graduate school. I know you want us to go get master's degrees and PhDs, but I want a law degree. And I said, okay, just understand what Charles Hamilton Houston said. Now, for those who are listening, David, who don't know who Charles Hamilton Houston is, so Professor Houston was the architect of Brown versus Board of Education of 1954. Even though people think that Thurgood Marshall was the architect, he wasn't. He actually brought it to its logical conclusion. The person under whom he studied was Charles Hamilton Houston, who was dean of the law school at Howard University. Charles Hamilton Houston said, for those of you who want to be lawyers, you're either going to be a social engineer or you're going to be a parasite and there's no in-between. Either you're gonna work on behalf of humankind, right? Or you're gonna be someone who just enters this profession to get what you can get, right? In fact, Eldridge Cleaver years later appropriated that, but he said you're either part of the solution or part of the problem. So I said to these young kids, I said, okay, you wanna be a lawyer? Go be a DA, put yourself in a position where you can climb the ladder, and buy for a DA's position or a prosecutor's position, and then go to work on behalf of the American people. 
So these are the kind of changes that I like to see come about. And for those who protesting in the streets is not their thing. Hey, listen, I live in the city of Westerville. We've had a couple of protests um, over the last couple of months, two of which I participated in. But for those for whom protest is not their thing, I say, okay, what I'd like you to do is protest at the ballot box. And what I mean by that is, okay, folk need to understand that police officers answer to police chiefs, police chief answers to mayors, right? So if we want to use our vote as a protest, then we need to start voting in office mayors who understand that there are real problems taking place with regard to police officers and minority communities, and who understand that when mayors, as Jefferson said, when mayors start to behave antithetical to the people's interests, it's time to vote that person out of office. But too often, David, what we'll say is, let's wait until it's time for re-election, and then we're going to vote that person out of office. No, don't wait till then. Use something called a recall election and vote the person out of office midterm if you have to. There are many tools at our disposal that as Americans, we simply don't take advantage of. But to answer your question, the changes that I like to see are those that I mentioned a few minutes ago. And I think that they may be on the horizon. I'm hopeful. I'm as hopeful as I've ever been. Judson L. Jeffries, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Voices from the Arts and Sciences is produced and recorded at The Ohio State University College of Arts and Sciences Technology Services Studio. Sound engineering by Paul Kotheimer. Produced by Doug Dangler. I'm Ava Dale.